book of Deuteronomy, the fifth book of Moses, fifth book of the Bible. Deuteronomy literally means second law. Indeed, there is a, a repeating of the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy 40 years after their first <clears throat> giving by the Lord his voice from Mount Sinai. They're renewing their covenant with God. And these ten words are basically the, the uh, covenant document. We have, we have uh, symbols of our covenants, whether it be a uh, marriage covenant or a, a um, citizenship covenant or something like that. God has a written covenant him and his people. Well, this is one long sermon by Moses before he, he is uh, gone into eternity before the Lord takes him and buries him. It's amazing the Lord buried Moses. And, uh, two angels argued over where he was buried. But there are some so many so many words here, so many passages that we could consider. I'd like us to uh, look in chapter 6 today. Chapter 6. I'm going to start with verse number 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord in Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. Thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house and when thou walkest by the way and when thou liest down and when thou risest up. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. And thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house and on thy gates. And it shall be when the Lord thy God shall have brought thee into the land which he sware unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give thee great and goodly cities which thou buildest not, and houses full of all good things which thou fillest not, and wells digged which thou diggest not, Vineyards and olive trees, which thou plantest not. When thou shalt have eaten and be full, then beware lest thou forget the Lord, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God and serve him and shalt swear by his name. And again, may God bless the reading of his word to our hearts. I'd like us to consider the subject swearing by God's name. It may sound strange, as if it's merely Old Testament jargon and not to be uh, continued into our day. I want you to notice some very familiar language that we're used to in our day. Do you swear that the evidence you shall give to the court in this matter shall be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God. That's swearing by his name. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully 
um, executeth the office of President of the United States and will to the best of my ability preserve and protect, thank you, I can't read my own language, my own writing, and defend the Constitution of the United States, so help me God. I take you to be my lawfully wedded, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, I promise to love and cherish you. With this ring, I seal my promise to be your faithful and loving spouse as God is my witness. Even church membership vows, for instance, this is a church membership vow in the Methodist Church, to covenant with God and the members of the church. I confess Jesus Christ as my personal Savior and Lord to earnestly contend for the faith once delivered unto the saints to support the church, to uphold the congregation in prayer, presence, gifts, that is spiritual gifts, service, and witness. And we as a church, for instance, we promise to uphold the hunts in prayer, fellowship, and practical love. So do chapters 6, and 6 13 and 10, verse 20, really say, swear. Chapter 10, verse 20 is a little fuller in its, in its language. We read, uh, Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God, him shalt thou serve, and to him shalt thou cleave, and swear by his name. And it's interesting how even commandment number nine is given in uh, legal language. Thou shalt not... Uh, bear false witness or swear false witness is the idea, uh, bear false, a false oath uh, to your neighbor. So it's, it's, it's given in, in, as court language. And of course, it, it includes every lie underneath that, but it's, it's given in, in legal language as if, again, we understand that person in, in court of law in a courtroom, because of the seriousness of the matter, they're going to uh, put themselves under an oath to uh, tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. In other words, they're not going to equivocate uh, in their mind and say one thing and then reserve another thing in their mind. So there are scriptural and lawful oaths and vows that are ways of worshiping God. You know, we think of how do, how do people worship the Lord? We say, well, people pray, or the preaching of the word, or the giving of offerings, or meditation. Uh, in many ways, the Lord has allowed us, has commanded us to worship him in spirit and in truth. But there are lawful oaths and vows. One of, our, one of the chapters of, of the in our in our in the substandard of the Westminster substandards, let me just read a couple of these in chapter twenty-two. A lawful oath is a part of religious worship, wherein upon just occasion the person swearing solemnly calleth God to witness what he asserteth or promiseth, 
and to judge him according to the truth or falsehood of what he sweareth. The name of God only is that which by which men ought to swear, and therein it is to be used with all holy fear and reverence. Therefore, to swear vainly or rashly by that glorious and dreadful name, or to swear at all by any other thing, is sinful and to be abhorred. Yet, as in matters of weight and moment, an oath is warranted by the word of God under the New Testament as well as under the Old so a lawful oath being imposed by lawful authority in such matters ought to be taken. Whosoever taketh an oath ought duly to consider the weightiness of so solemn an act, and therein to avouch nothing but what he is fully persuaded is the truth. Neither may any man bind himself by oath to anything but what is good and just, and what he believeth so to be, and what he is able and resolved to perform." It is not to be made to any creature, but to God alone, and that it may be accepted to be, is to be made voluntarily out of faith and conscience of duty in way of thankfulness for mercy received or obtaining what we want, whereby we more strictly bind ourselves to necessary duties or to other things, so far and so long as they may fitly conduce thereunto. And finally, no man may vow to do anything forbidden in the word of God or what would hinder any duty therein commanded or which is not in his own power and for the performance of which he hath no promise or ability from God. So in which respects, monastic vows of perpetual single life, professed poverty, and regular obedience are so far from being degrees of higher perfection that they are superstitious and sinful snares in which no Christian may entangle himself. And so our subject today is, is an unusual one, certainly, but as we exposit God's word, it's easy to leap over things that may not be so uh, popular or so agreeable, especially in our day, and especially because it's easy to take a verse like, swear not at all, that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, as if he's saying there are no longer to be any oaths or vows. And just to anticipate uh, the answer to that, we all read that Jesus allowed himself to be put under oath. The high priest said, I adjure thee. That's oath language. I, I command you as an authority, as the high priest, that you swear to God that you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You put him under oath. And what did Jesus say? Thou sayest, I am. In other passages, I am. And henceforth you will see the Son of Man coming in power, with great glory with all his Father's mighty angels. So the Lord Jesus was not being contradictory to his words in the Sermon on the Mount, which had taken place a couple years before that. And we will look at, at, at the answer to that. But it is a command of God, notice, of a moral nature. The Lord doesn't give us the option. He says, this is a way in which you don't forget me in the land that I'm giving you. When, when you have vineyards that you haven't uh, planted and you have wells that you didn't dig and, and so on, he says, it'll be easy for you to forget me. And how often it is the case when, when we're sick, we seek the Lord. When we're well, we begin to forget the Lord. When we're poor, we forget the, we, we seek the Lord, and when we're richer, we, we seek to forget the Lord. And the Lord is saying, beware. 
that you don't forget me. And here's a way that you remember me. You, you love me. You fear me. You serve me. You cleave to me. And you swear by my name. I want you to bring my name out in the public. Not in vain. You see, what this is, is a reversal of, it's the precept of the third commandment. The third commandment is, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. There's the prohibition. Don't mock my name. Don't use my name in a joke. Don't use my name glibly and vainly. But the reverse is the precept. Use my name reverently, joyfully. Use it in prayer. Use it in thanksgiving. Use it in court. Use it in serious matters where you call me to record. You, 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 you ask me to be your witness so that you'll, be, so you'll keep your word in this promise and in this vow. And when someone says, so help me God, or calls God into witness of their promise, they're saying, may you bless me if I keep my word, but may you chasten me if I don't. And that's, we see that God can do either one. We know that he has that power. So he's actually commanding us to do this, and it's of a moral nature. And uh, obviously, it's not ceremonial in nature. It's not civil in nature. There are three kinds of laws, you remember, civil, ceremonial, and moral. And we know that the civil laws have... Have, have been extinct. They're no longer a theocracy. For instance, um, thou shalt not take a mother with its young, for instance. Something like, along those lines is, is, would be more of a ceremonial law. The Lord doesn't, doesn't say that we can't take a mother bird with a baby bird anymore, although that's, that is certainly a, 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 a merciful thing to do. But there were many laws along those lines, ceremony. He doesn't tell us any longer to take a sacrifice and offer it on an altar. Or, again, some of the, some of the civil laws uh, that they had regarding their military, or even laws like you can't plow with an ox and a donkey. Those things have passed away. But this is of a, a moral nature. This is the use of God's name in a proper way that exalts him. And that's the idea that it's to be done in a reverent, worshipful way. Notice he says, Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God and serve him and shalt swear by his name. And this is the verse that Jesus used when the devil said, I'll give you all these kingdoms if you bow down and worship me. And Jesus quotes Deuteronomy. Of course, it wasn't 613 in his day. It was somewhere in the beginning of the role of Deuteronomy. But he quoted what we know as chapter 6, the address in verse 13. Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God and serve him. We know from, for instance, the New Testament reads, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and him only shalt thou serve. But notice uh, in Deuteronomy, part of that worship is swearing by his name, using his name. We, we sang, blessed be the name, or we're going to sing, blessed be the name of the Lord. We sang Psalm 103, Bless the Lord, O my soul. We're using his name, his titles, his words, his works, his attributes. Those are all under the category of God's name. So often we think the word name just simply means uh, his proper names, like God and like Lord and so on, like Jesus or Christ. But actually Christ is a title. 
It's, it refers to God's titles. We don't use God's titles in vain, like the Most High God or, or uh, the Possessor of Heaven and Earth. We don't use God's miracles in vain. How often we, we, uh, we, we take his miracles in vain. We profane his miracles. We say that somebody threw a football and 100 yards, it was a miracle. Or some catch was a miracle. That's making light of some revelation of God. A miracle is a work of God that speaks of his power and his wisdom and his glory. We ought not to minimize and profane, make common those things that ought to, when we, when we hear miracle or omnipotence or Lord or uh, John 3.16, for God so loved the world, it ought to produce in us reverence. It ought to bring thoughts of of reverence and honor and worship toward the Lord and not humor and mockery that how often we, we drag these things into our normal conversation and it causes people to not have that, that reverence when they hear it from the word of God and when they hear it in contexts of worship. And we're told that we are to cleave to him and then, of course, we all understand who he is. As we cleave to the Lord, we learn all that reveals his name and so that we're able then to swear by his name in a very uh, understandable and, and uh, appreciated way. See, using God's name, even in oaths and vows, it glorifies and boasts uh, of the Lord in his titles, his works, and his words. In other words, we're saying uh, someone can can be married and have the marriage vows in Australia and in America at the same time and call God to record. How can that be if we didn't believe he was present everywhere? We would say, well, well, I guess he's only in Australia, so the only can, we got to make sure that vows aren't being made and oaths aren't being made every moment of the day. we got to space him out because can he only be in one place at one time? No, the fact that there can be vows and oaths made all over the world right now indicates we believe God is omnipresent and all-powerful, that he hears, that he can work, that he can deal with those who lie, and he can bless those who speak the truth and keep their promises. His omnipresence, he's anywhere and everywhere. His omnipotence, that he can bless or curse. And this is what, for instance, Solomon said at the at the dedication of the temple, 1 Kings 8, he said, and he put the people under oath, and he said that, that we'll make sure that in this place that we preach only your words and honor your name. Of course, he ended up disobeying God, but he said, we know that you can condemn those who are, who are disobedient and you'll justify those who are obedient. So we include him, in other words, in every realm. You think about all the realms that involve serious situations where we have oaths or vows. People have asked, what's the difference? Well, people have a different way of distinguishing or even defining, but I look at it as a vow is made only to God, between the soul and God, where oaths are made between individuals with God as a witness. But it's, it's, it's more complex than that. But for instance, uh, Abraham made a vow to God that if, if God would give him victory over the kings that he was seeking to defeat because they had taken Lot and, 
and they had ruthlessly um, ransacked other nations. He said, Lord, if you give me victory in this, I will take nothing. He just, you know, when those that defeated kings and could have, obviously had the liberty to take the, bo- the booty. But Abraham said, Lord, I promise I will not take anything so that you'll be honored and no one can say that they made Abraham rich, but that they'll know it's the Lord who gave Abraham the victory over the kings. And so he made that vow. Remember, Jacob makes the vow to the Lord that if he safely brings him north to find a wife and brings him back, that he'll give a tenth of all his possessions. But these were promises made only to God without individuals intervening. But marriage is technically an oath, I mean, between two individuals. But think of the different oaths or vows in the Bible, in the Bible and in a society. The marriage vow, the dedication of a child that will bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, the dedication of a building, a church building like 1 Kings 8, legal settings, where a person's life is at or a reputation is on the line. Those are serious situations, and that's why we bring oaths into the courtroom. Citizenship in a nation, that's important. Are you going to be a faithful citizen? Are you going to rebel against what all, all the United States is, is uh, known for or has a reputation for? Are you going to be a faithful citizen, or are you going to be a rebellious citizen? Church membership, uh, ordination vows of ministers and elders, very serious, very important. We have many others as well. So they're for matters of truthfulness and serious situations and relationships. In other words, we don't use swear language in everyday, in everyday life. I remember as a child, I, how often I, I would say, I swear to God about such trivial matters. You know, in, in our relationship with our friends. And that's what Jesus meant in Matthew 5. Uh, he said, swear not at all. But then he goes on to say, let your nay be, your yea be yea and your nay be nay. And the idea is the Pharisees were, were swearing by the temple and swearing by their hair and swearing about everything. And the Lord says, no, in everyday language and relationships, you're, you are as good as your word. You, would, you don't need to, to, you should be believable. People should believe you when you say you're going to do something or uh, when you give a, 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 a truth about something, about yourself or, or your family. They shouldn't have to you say, well, do you swear? A person that needs to swear about everything is a liar. Nobody believes him. But it's, it's, it's taking God's name in vain. And James says the same thing. Let your yea be yea and your nay be nay, lest you fall into judgment. The point is, in everyday matters, there's no need for oaths and vows. But for very serious, very serious matters, like salvation, God swears to Abraham that he's going to keep his promise. A salvation relationship between God and his people is of such a nature that God swore that he would save us to the end. He didn't need to. God can be trusted. But we're told, for instance, in Hebrews that, that he, might, he might encourage and strengthen Abraham's faith even more. He swore to Abraham that he would keep his promises. 
to give him a child and to give him the land and so on. He didn't need to do that. But for Abraham's sake, he swore by himself because he could swear by no greater. Marriage is called a covenant in Proverbs chapter 2 and Malachi chapter 2. In other words, uh, it's so serious that God has made marriage not just a loose relationship, but a covenant relationship because he knows that we're so unfaithful and we're so fickle and that we need to be bound because how often we find, well, I don't like the way she, she cooks the dinner, she burns the dinner. I don't like the way that he, that he, that he arranges things. He's always throwing his, his you know, people have, have divorced for every reason under the sun. We, oft, we have to realize, and, and how often we're told, we tell two people who are about to be married, do you realize you're marrying sinners? Mm. We're sinners. And we all have our idiosyncrasies and we all have our, our problems. And, and Tanya has to put up with my problems. She has to put up with the times that I drape my shirt over the, over the chair or, or leave my socks on the floor and all those kinds of things. You try to dwell with your spouse according to knowledge and you try to, uh, to do your best to please your spouse. But we all fail each other. And a covenant tells me, um, for better, for worse. So they told you the other day, Tanya said, what if I'm in a, in a bed and, I'm, and I'm, I've lost all my senses? What are you going to do at that time? How often have we found when people have, have left their spouses? Our, the piano teacher for our children had her spouse leave her because she got sick. You hear that over and over and over again. And I said to Tanya, I'm in covenant. I am reminded by this symbol every day that I am in covenant. I have sworn to you with God as my witness that I will be faithful till death. Covenant binds us. It binds us to be faithful to our word, to be faithful to one another, to be faithful to God. It's a covenant relationship to be a member of a church, and it's biblical. You read in Nehemiah chapter 9, the list of all the people and the leaders, they all bound themselves, even by a signature, that they would be in covenant with each other. And you look, it was a religious covenant. It wasn't a civil covenant. You look at the four or five things involved there. We will keep God's word. We will keep the Sabbath day. We will not allow our children to intermarry with, with the world. We will contribute to the work of the house of God. And the very last words of Nehemiah 10 is we will not forsake the house of our God. People have said, give me evidence in the Bible where there's church membership. There it is. Nehemiah 9 and Nehemiah 10 gives evidence of that. It's necessary. There are so many practical reasons and I don't have time for that, but people have said, give me arguments for membership. Well, you need an identifiable group from which elders can watch. A definite committed Officers that can be identifiable leaders. Um, mutual obligations are impossible without tangible commitments. Um, ministerial responsibilities require it. Uh, all these things, accountability, uh, legal matters require it, and so on. You can't buy real estate. You can't do it without membership, without these things. I'm just giving some examples. But that's why it's so important that we have oaths and vows in these serious matters, like citizenship. Isn't it interesting when, when you, you're in a classroom or you're somewhere like at the, at the 
town hall meetings when I lead in prayer before the meeting. But just before the prayer, we have a Pledge of Allegiance. You look at the flag, which is a symbol of our nation, and we pledge allegiance. That's, in a sense, an oath. I pledge allegiance to the flag that represents our country and the rest of that allegiance. It's, it's an oath that we're renewing every time. When we come to the Lord's table, we're renewing our oath to the Lord that we're his, and we're going to live for him, and then we're going to serve him and fear him. And again, in courtroom settings, a matter of life and death and rep- reputation, ordination vows, so important so that the minister can say to the presbytery and the elders to the presbytery and to their churches, I'm going to be faithful in my oversight. In my personal life, I'm going to live a holy life that is an example and not a detriment to the Lord and his church. But we read together in Matthew, think about how serious a matter it was for Jesus to identify himself as Messiah and Son of God. This is the Bible, one, of the, one verse, one text in the Bible that is conclusive to us, assurance to us, an affirmation to us that we haven't believed in the wrong Messiah, that we have believed in the right one. That's why Jesus allowed himself, you notice Jesus didn't say to the high priest, I've, I've said that there's, there's no more need of vows and oaths anymore. He said, I put you under oath. You who are Jesus of Nazareth, are you the Christ, the Messiah that's come to save our people? And are you the Son of God that you proclaim to be? And Jesus said, I do. He put himself under oath. We needed that, how serious it was. We have no doubt Jesus put himself under oath that he is the prophet, the priest, and the king that he's the Son of God, the Savior of the world, and there's none else that God has chosen. And so, for matters of truthfulness and seriousness, so there are lawful scriptural oaths, obviously. The Lord swore to Abraham. He swears to us that he'll keep his promise to save us forever. Abraham caused his servant to swear that you're not going to find a wife of the Gentiles. You're going to find a wife for Isaac that's, that's of my people. Jacob swore to Laban that there's going to be peace between us. And they, they built that, that altar. Joseph made his people swear to carry his bones out of Egypt, that he wasn't an Egyptian, that he was one of God's people. Jephthah's vow, whether we know it was sad, yes, and people ask, well, Jeff, Jeff vows this. He says, Lord, if you give me victory, if I return to my house in peace, the first thing that comes out of my house, I'll sacrifice to you. Well, that, in a sense, we would call a rash vow because he was assuming that a sheep or a goat or a bird would come out, as it were, and he would sacrifice it. Little did he know his daughter came out. And people have asked, did he really sacrifice his daughter Well, everyone has their own opinion about that. But at least we know that she never married, that she was a perpetual virgin, sacrificed the joy of a woman in a rash vow. We need to be careful if we we vow rashly. Paul, 
put, on, put the church in Thessalonica under an oath. He said, I put you under oath that you read this epistle. <laughs> it's how important it is. He recognized it as the word of God. And he said, for instance, to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 1.23, he uses, he uses oath language. I call God to record this day that I have come sincerely to you. Because so many were saying he was a, he was a, a wolf in sheep's clothing, that he was out for himself. But he felt like he needed to put himself under oath to convince the Corinthians that he was for real, that he was sincerely the Lord's. And so, sometimes, and again, we have to be careful. It's better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Because the Bible says, for instance, in Psalm 15, the believer who walks with God is one who swears to his hurt and changes not. It's an interesting statement. What does it mean? He swears to his hurt and changes not. In other words, someone puts his word on the line. He says, I swear I'll do this. And he finds out after he swore that it's become inconvenient, whatever it might be. You enter into a vow and find it inconvenient or too costly. And again, we can look at, for instance, a marriage vow. Someone says, I really, I've lost my independence. I don't like this. I know that's not always the only reason, but that is often a reason I like my independence. And so they back out of a vow. Or again, one becomes an invalid and the other partner drops out because they don't want a life of such difficulty. There are people that have actually put their children under an oath to visit their grave every year and even only to release certain amount of the... Of the um, the inheritance, unless only if they visit the grave once a year. Whatever. We have un- we're under a voluntary oath as ministers and elders. We're not going to drink alcohol. Whether we, whether we agree with it or not, as long as we're elders and, or members in the Free Presbyterian Church, we're not going to drink alcohol. And, you know, people have their... I'm not saying it's sin, but we voluntarily... We don't park our brains and park our wills. We just, in this case, we submit our liberty to our charity. But it is an oath that I take before my brethren. And uh, by God's grace, I haven't touched a drink of alcohol other than NyQuil since about 1980. So there are lawful scriptural oaths, and sometimes we realize when we make an oath that it's to our hurt but because we love the Lord and because we are true to our word, we keep them, even though we find out that maybe it cost us more than we anticipated. And of course, you know in the Bible there are unlawful oaths. And when we make an unlawful oath and we realize that we need to repent of it, Herod, remember when his, his uh, incestuous wife's daughter Herodias danced before all of his his uh, friends, his dignitary friends, and they were in probably in a drunken stupor, and he makes a rash vow. He says, ask of me anything. Ask of half the kingdom, and I'll give it to you. And you remember how murderous his, his incestuous wife, he took his brother's Philip's wife, and she says to tell her, she told her daughter Herodias, you go and tell Herod, I want the head of 
John the Baptist. Can you imagine? And so the messenger comes to Herod the king and anything, what is it? What is it, Herodias? And she says in front of all his friends, I want John the Baptist decapitated and I want his head on a charger, on a plate. And what does it say? I can't do that. I fear God. I sinned by making a a rash vow. He didn't want the embarrassment before his friends. He wanted to save his own reputation. And he went and commanded, and they went in the... Can you imagine, John? Six months is all he served. Never married, most likely. Lonely in the prison, and here comes a soldier, and you wonder if John at first thought, maybe I'm being released. But then he saw the sword in the soldier's hand. And John just had a few moments to say, Lord, into thy thy hands I commit my spirit. Martin Luther, after he got saved, realized his monastic vow was unbiblical. And so he, he repented and he married. He married Katie. And so we, we find, remember in the book of Acts, they had a conspiracy of 40 people. They vowed, we are not going to eat or drink until we murder Paul. Well, those, those guys didn't, didn't die of starvation. Paul got wind of it. You know, a little bird will take that information. And his nephew, I think it was his nephew, he, he heard about it. And he went into the centurion and he said, they're going to murder Paul. They're not going to eat or drink until they do so. And so he had them escorted down state, and uh, they never got to murder Paul. And I don't think they dug 40 graves in 40 days. Liars. Demons. Isn't it interesting? The demons tried to put Jesus under oath, not to destroy them before the time. Jesus ignored it. Though he gave, he gave him permission to to go into the pigs, he ignored. The sons of Sceva, isn't it interesting? They, they, as it were, made an oath before the man filled with demons. And the demon said, I recognize Paul, but, and I recognize Jesus, but I don't recognize you. And he, didn't, he, didn't, he ignored the oath. And, he, and all seven brothers got, got, got uh, Accosted, got what? What am I trying to say? They got they got beaten up and they left without clothes and ran. You could just see the whole scene and and the the uh, the mockery of those that have not the power of God. But we are to be good to our word, and if we have if we have ever put ourselves under an unlawful oath, we need to repent. God forgives. It's not it's not the unpardonable sin. But may I close with this thought? It just occurred to me as I was studying this and, and I was looking at the text in Isaiah. <clears throat> There's a universal oath that's prophesied for the future. Every single person will be under this oath. Every single person. Let me read these texts. Isaiah 45, 22. Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is none else. And he goes on to say, I have sworn by myself. So God puts himself under oath. I have sworn by myself. The word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that is, return void, 
that unto me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. Surely shall one say, as the Lord have I, in the Lord I have righteousness, and that is Jehovah's Kenu, and to him shall men come, and all that are incensed against him shall be ashamed. Let me just look really quickly again at that text, because I wonder if, if, I, if the word swear is there that I missed. Look with me in Isaiah 45. 23. Yes, I, I mistranslated that. It says in 45.23, every tongue shall swear, shall be put under oath when they bow the knee. And now I quote the New Testament that quotes that text. Romans 14.11 as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. When is it that they'll confess or swear? So that every one of us shall give account of himself to God at the day of judgment. Philippians 2.9, who, who is that one that they're going to confess and swear to that he is Jehovah? Philippians 2.9 and following. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and every tongue should confess, swear is Isaiah's word. Every tongue should swear that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every atheist, every agnostic, Every soul at that day is going to say, the name that I swore in vain, the name that I abhorred, that I hated, the God that I took his name in vain, I swear that Jesus Christ is the Lord of all. He is my Lord, whether for good or for ill. Amen. Every person will swear by his name, Amen. the name that is above every name. You see, brother and sister, this is not just Old Testament. This is a way in which we remember the Lord. We bring him into all of our lives, personal, private, and public. Whether it be, whether it be in prayer, we vow to the Lord something privately. Whether it be in the church, we have church membership. Whether in, the, in, in marriage, in the family, whether in society, in the courtroom, ordination vows, citizenship vows, God is everywhere being sworn to reverently and shown that he is all-powerful, known everywhere by even swearing by that great and glorious name of the Lord. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. May we fear him and serve him and cling to him and yea, in appropriate times and matters swear by his holy and glorious name. Amen. O Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, such glorious names, such glorious titles. O Lord, you are glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders. How we take your name in vain. We take your words in vain, your, your miracles in vain, your titles in vain. We take, Lord, all these things in vain. Forgive us our sins. I pray that you would give us a reverential awe of you. 
you've not commanded us to have this cowering fear, but that your fear may be before our faces, that we not have a cowering fear. As Moses said, or as you said, Lord, at Mount Sinai, please, please change us, mature us, Lord, and that we might take your name reverently, joyfully, as we, as we worship thee, as we fellowship together, as we go into the world, that we would preach your name, that we would exalt your name, and that others might realize there's none like you in all the earth. You are truly the most high God, the possessor of heaven and earth. What a glorious name you've given to Jesus. Yea, he took a common name, but Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Lord Jesus, there's none like unto you. We bless you and praise you this day. Oh, may this message be an evidence that we have sworn by your name and that we have sworn by your name holy, in a holy way, in a reverent way, in a way, Lord, that pleases you. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Let us close together and sing, Blessed Be the Name of the Lord. Hymn number 41 from our Blue Hymnals. All praise to Him who reigns above, majesty and praise.